Everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves County Radio. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On tonight's show, we go to the heart of the Chumash Nation in Santa Barbara, California, in recognition and in memorial of the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill, the third worst oil spill in the history of the colonial borders of the United States. And in the second part of tonight's show, our final segment on colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico, the 1991 National Liberation Zapatista Uprising. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's show, we go to the heart of the Chumash Nation in Santa Barbara, California, in acknowledgement, remembrance, and reflection on the Santa Barbara oil spill, which, which occurred on January 28th and into the early part of February in 1969. The Santa Barbara oil spill happened in the Santa Barbara Channel near the city of Santa Barbara in Southern California. At the time, the Santa Barbara oil spill was the largest oil spill in the history of the United States and today now ranks third after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon and 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spills. The Santa Barbara oil spill remains to be the largest oil spill that has occurred off the California coastal waters. The source of the spill was a blowout on January 28 of 1969, six miles off the coast on Union Oils, now part of the Chevron Corporation's Platform A. It's estimated that within a 10-day period, over 80,000 to 100,000 barrels of oil was leaked out into the Southern California coastline, causing catastrophic environmental coastal damage. At the time of the Santa Barbara oil spill, there was no Clean Water Act of 1972, there was no National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, and there was no California Environmental Quality Act of 1970, all state and federal laws that apply to protecting our ocean coastal waters. Santa Barbara citizens and other California citizens and indigenous peoples in the 1960s had vigorously opposed offshore oil development when the federal government decided to lease offshore tracks to raise revenues needed to wage the Vietnam War. In 2017, California's Division of Oil, Gas, and Geothermal Resources, which regulates drilling in California, approximates that there are 238 oil and gas wells that have been drilled offshore since the start of 2012, 
And of the 5,435 total offshore wells, approximately 1,366 offshore wells are currently actively producing wells. With federal managers moving forward in March of 2019 with the sale of oil and gas leases that include lands near the Chaco Canyon National Historic Park and other sacred sites to indigenous peoples, Marcus Lopez, co-host of American Indian Airwaves County Radio and member of the Chumash Nation, sits down with longtime Chumash elder and activist who specializes in cultural resources, indigenous monitoring, and the protection of sacred sites, John Rias, who at the time recalls what happened with the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. In 1969, I was 21 years old at the time when the oil spill happened. And uh, we went down the beach to look at it, and we seen all the oil spilled all over the beach, the harbor and everything else. And then we just couldn't believe what happened. And then uh, we couldn't do anything about it at the time because there was no laws or anything to protect anything that belonged to our people. And so we basically uh, just had to watch it. And then you tried to tell people that we were concerned about stuff and nobody would listen to us at that point in time. They just ignored us. The problem was is that everybody thought that Chumash people didn't exist anymore. And uh, so... John, what do you mean by that? Well, with the way they wrote the history and everything about the Shumash people, they basically said we had all died off. The tribes had died off and then no people existed. They always talked about us in the past tense, like we weren't here anymore. So, first of all, we had to prove to the people that we were still here and there was Shumash people living here. County and uh, records, and we found out that they had bought a bulldozer with federal funds so what we did was we used the National Antiquities Act and turned around and had to claim our people were antiques in order to save it that's basically what Antiquities Act meant and so we were able to stop them hold them up and stuff like that and out of that scenario we came to an agreement and the county agreed to go out and survey all the county properties they own for archaeology sites and stuff like that we did that under a program which is called CRIMP. What year was that John? uh, 1971 I think and uh, so anyway, when we did that, John Ehrlichson, who was the lead archaeologist at the time, he was just a young guy. He was still going to school at the university. So we put a whole team together and we surveyed all the county properties. Took nine and a half months to survey them. And when, you, when you mean the all the counties, uh, uh, county from, what, what, from what portions of the county uh, that was this project? All of Santa Barbara County, from one end to the other, we surveyed every property that the county had owned, like parks and properties and stuff like that. And uh, so now, does that mean, mean private property or just uh, county just property? County properties. So we we surveyed everything that was under the county's jurisdiction, as far as the county had uh, jurisdiction over the areas, like parks and different things like this, and and where their buildings were, where the jail was, and things like that. So, it, John, how long did that take? Nine and a half months. We had a team of probably 15 people, archaeologists, Native Americans together, and out of that, we created the first uh, 
cultural resource programs to protect them. The county agreed that if we dropped the lawsuit, they would go ahead and institute some kind of programs to put protection on. John, for our listeners, what do you mean by cultural resources? Our cemeteries, our village sites, and uh, areas of religious practice and things like this that were being dug up, damaged by building and road work and everything else, oil lines, everything, wherever they were doing construction and uh, they were destroying sites, cemeteries. We were more concerned about the cemeteries at that time and then uh, the rest of it. And as we went through, we, we added more and more conditions into the county to protect it. And then... Uh, what, did you find a lot of cultural sensitive areas at the yes, time? Yes, we, we did. We uh, did. There's quite a few sensitive areas in, in Santa Barbara County. And part of the, the problem was is that uh, nobody knew where they were. And that's why we went out and surveyed everything. And uh, so we got that all done. And then what happened was is we created cultural resource programs for that, and then we were having problems the other places, like with Caltrans and state parks and things like that. So then we finally petitioned the uh, governor of the state of California to create some kind of a, a organization that would protect Native American cultural mm-hmm. resources, mm-hmm. and that's when we we were all sitting down in a barn up in San Luis Obispo bunch of us and uh, just brainstorming back and forth about how, how do we deal with this thing. So we came up with the idea of maybe creating some kind of a commission or something like that. So we commissioned uh, the governor at that time. So that's... Oh, who was the governor at the time? I think it was Duke Majin, I'm not sure. But anyway, we uh, instituted the Native American Heritage Commission at that time, the, the first uh, commissioner of the Native American Heritage Commission was Willie Pink. So so you basically created the Native American Heritage Commission. Yeah, all the people together, you know, brainstormed the thing, and so it came up, and then we met with other Native American groups, you know, as we started out, so then we ended up with all these different groups through California, Native Americans, and we got together, and that's how the Native American Heritage Commission was created, and then we got the commissioners in, and uh, at that so, time. So, John, what year was that? Early, in the 70s. I don't remember exactly what year, but it was 70-something, late we're, 70s. We're speaking with John Ruiz, a cultural Chumash consultant, an elder, Chumash elder, that has been not only a cultural activist, since uh, since it's all live, we we are talking about the 1969 oil spill and the repercussions of the environmental movement. Now, John, when you talk about cultural resources, were the environmentalists anything to do with this? Well, they they helped us a lot on on some points. We had quite a few people that helped us. Environmental groups, Environmental Defense Center. We had. Uh, a uh, lot of different people that that helped us out. We uh, during Point Conception, we had Kenny Loggins, Jackson Brown, and all them. They did concerts for us to raise money to to try to protect Point Conception because Point Conception is one of the most religious areas for our people. 
that's where we believe that our souls pass through to go to the next world. So, and at that time they were proposing LNG plants, so we actually uh, ended up having to occupy Point Conception for about nine months while we were dealing with the uh, Lands Commission and stuff in the federal government over the siting of the LNG plant. So then we finally came to a settlement with them too and we got that settled and finally ended up protecting Point Conception with the uh, help of uh, environmentalists too. We did it all together. We had a lot of people from the Environmental Defense Center that really helped us a lot. Now John, we, we talked about 1969 oil spill yeah. And from that, they said that the oil spill created the, the inertia, if you will, of the environmental movement in, throughout the United States. What did it do for the Indian people throughout the United States? Uh, I know that California took the lead on cultural resources. Why do you think that occurred? I think at the same time that that oil spill happened, there there was a lot of other things going on through the United States with Native American people at the time. A lot of stuff was happening. We had uh, problems in South Dakota with Wounded Knee and, and different things like that. And so we were communicating with all the different Native American groups and back and forth, people from Erie Coordination and, and different things like that. And so the Native Americans, kind of got together and started saying we have to protect what belongs to us now and so all these different groups formed like we we met with a lot of people back then and then we were we were what we learned at the time and what we did we started teaching to other native american groups and that's how uh, the cultural resource program started in California and went all the way across the United States. We even went all the way over to uh, Florida and taught the Seminole people how to deal with cultural resources and things like that. We had people from different areas of uh, California coming down to Santa Barbara. We just kept them at our homes and stuff and things like that and tried to teach them what we learned. And then they took it back home and then they started using it and then they changed some of the things to where it would suit them for their areas and things but they the basic thing was is that the things that were created in Santa Barbara was the foundation of what's happened with the cultural resources all the way through now so but now John when talking about cultural resources, I know that you started not because just because your aunties told you to get out there and you know and 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 um, follow their word, but well, they also basically did tell. Yeah, and but yet one of the things that you shared often was 1969 was the oil spill, but yet also. 1969 through the 70s was not only, like you said, the Red Power Days and whatnot, yeah. but also about the reason what I recall that you and people like you, like John Sespi, Colota, and and Jimmy Carl, and and one yeah. and one sock, and I can go on, but it is a spirituality of it all. That spirit. What you talk about that? It's a hard thing to explain, but I mean, you have a group of people, and we were working like a fine-tuned machine. I mean, you know, everybody had a job to do. You know, everybody uh, said, okay, well, 
what we did was sit down basically and say, okay, what's this person good at? What's that person good at? How do they know how to deal with this thing and that? And we basically set up a group which was called the United Shumash Council at the time. And so we uh, took these different individuals and they took a certain portion of what we were doing and they did their part and we all each did our part. And between all of us, we put this together and we couldn't have did it without each other. And in that, by doing that, it brought us all closer together. And uh, we started bringing back our cultural practices. We started bringing back our religious practices and things like that, that were kind of not out in the open so much. We mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, Back in the 70s, we couldn't uh, actually go out and uh, publicly practice our religion because at that point in time, it was against the law. Not until 1970s did we have the right to go out and practice our religion freely and openly. We actually had to pass the Freedom Religion Act to give us that power to be able to go out and practice our religion freely before. Now that, then, that was uh, 19, uh, yeah, 1968, and, yeah. and, and so before yeah. that you were talking about this religious act then in turn gave you the leverage, you might say. Yeah, it gave us the leverage to, to be able to go out and protect a lot more of our religious sites and things like that. Like before, we couldn't go out and we couldn't like publicly light a fire to, to pray or anything like that. We couldn't set up sweat lodges anywhere or anything like that because of against the law. What they basically were doing was suppressing us from practicing our, our religion. A lot of them were saying, oh, you, you don't have a religion anymore. You, you're, you don't exist, so how can you have a religion? Mm -hmm. You know, so we had to, we basically had to, through the years, proved to people that the Shumash people were still here, they were still practicing their religion, their culture, except we were doing it what you would call underground. You know, we couldn't do it openly. But then after we passed, uh, helped get these different laws and things passed that opened it up for us to be able to do things more freely, you know, it, it changed a lot of what we could do. and. Uh, you know, it's it's hard, but our younger people today don't realize that the freedoms they have today, we didn't have them freedoms at that point in time. We had to fight for them, you know, which which to me I set today and and it kind of makes me feel good because they don't have to fight the way we had to fight. They don't have to do occupations. They don't have to go up against law enforcement and different things like that today in order to get the word across. They can actually stand up and publicly speak in, in county hearings, state hearings, and things like that, and be heard and not be told that you don't exist. Now, John, earlier you talked about the United Shubash Council, but also you didn't mention the Santa Barbara Indian Center. Why don't you talk about a little bit uh, about Santa that? Barbara Indian Center was created in... Uh, early 70s and it was created from uh, different Native American groups within Santa Barbara County. We had San Inez, we had uh, different groups 
then it was created to kind of help protect Point Conception because at that time there was no way to coordinate for it actually started because of the occupation. That way we'd be able to raise funds to get the people food while they were occupying, things like that. We uh, supplied all their medical care, all their needs while they were out there. And uh, our job in Santa Barbara, the group that was at the Indian Center, was to make sure that everybody was safe and to deal with the law enforcement agencies, the federal agencies, and whoever was involved in Point Conception. The people that were out at Point Conception, they were there. All our spiritual leaders were there. And we had spiritual leaders come from not only California, but all the way across the United States. We had uh, probably 40 different tribes. We had Pima people, we had Iroquois people, Sioux people, Archie Fire, Lame Deer, what is a medicine man from uh, Sioux Nation. He came out here with us and together we all put together this program to, to try to protect our resources. And that's when uh, some of the people from San Inez, they created the uh, Santa Barbara Indian Health Clinic. And that's when the clinic first started was here in Santa Barbara you know, to create health care for them, and that was done through, uh, through us. What we did was we used our nonprofit status to help them get started. The first thing they had was a dental clinic at that time and little, you know, health protection, but it, it slowly grew and then it got bigger and bigger through the time, and now it's the, it's the health center that's out in Santa Barbara today, and now San Inez has their own health right. facility. Now, John, everything at the Santa Barbara Indian Center was happening. It was a happening center. Oh, it, yeah. Now, I only talked about, um, once you talk, what did, what did the well, Santa, we, Santa Barbara Indian Center do? What, we did what, was what we, functions did they have? What we did is we created uh, educational programs for Native American people within the county school systems. We had we created a situation where we had Native American people going in and teaching students and stuff through the through uh, county programs and things like this. The federal government had programs at the time, and and what we were being what we were getting our funding through was for the education programs was through a program called CETA funding and county schools and that. And we went through the county schools, the superintendent of county schools at the time, we ran all our education programs through the county and they were certified and accredited by the county what we were doing, the uh, county education department. So we created that. We created uh, a lot of other things, but we had a lot of our people that were, like I said, whoever knew something or could do it better than the other people would, that's who we asked to do them portions of them things. We had uh, we had uh, Native and non-Native people helping us. Uh, one of our biggest persons that helped us was this uh, guy called Bob Whitney. He helped us a lot in the education program because we had no idea in the world how to set up an education program, you know. So he came in and assisted us and helped us uh, set up the education programs. For people in Santa Barbara, where was the um, Santa Barbara Indian Center? Where, did, where, did, it was, where was uh, it at? It was on Coda Street, 
uh, bought just across, uh, almost across the street from Santa Barbara Junior High on Coda Street. It was a little house we rented. I think at the time we were renting it for 100 bucks a month. You know, just a little hole-in-the-wall place, but it was enough where we could function. We had to, uh, it was so small that a lot of us, when we had a meeting, we used to have to stand up and lean against the wall. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't much. I mean, even when we started it, I mean, we went out and we were... We were just trying to raise money. We were selling junk and everything else just to, to make the rent payments. A right? typical Indian center, you might say. Yeah, a typical I, Indian center. You know, now, we're speaking with John Ruiz, uh, Too Much Elder, years of experience or culture resource individual that's been involved for the last 60 years in the community and also with the self-determination of Chumash people. And that was Marcus Lopez of American Indian Airwaves interviewing Chumash elder cultural resources specialist activist John Ruiz on the 50th anniversary of the Santa Barbara oil spill, which remains today the largest oil spill off the United States and California coastal waters. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Young children, all you know, tell them the stories, watch them all grow, give them the reasons to never let go, dishing is why we are still here. your ways, keep it alive, speak your own language, never goodbye, walk the red road, keep your head high, sing a good song, sing a bird song, sing a good song, sing a bird song. Precious and gold Govern yourselves, don't let go Sovereignty's more precious than gold Govern yourselves, don't let go Song Sovereignty by Tracy Lee Nelson here on American Indian Airwaves Cowdy Radio. In the final segment of today's show, we conclude our mini series on 25 years later the National Liberation Zapatista Army, EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico, 
the 25th anniversary of the National Liberation Zapatista Army Chiapas Uprising, whereby indigenous Mayan peoples reasserted their sovereignty over the colonial nation-state of Mexico, occurred on January 1st of 1994, the same day the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect. And now, Marcus Lopez of American Indian Airwaves concluding his conversation with longtime Coyote Radio correspondent Dr. Faviana Hirsch, on 25 years later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army, Colonial Refusal and Resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. Fabiano, the Zapatistas say that you are now in Zapatista's territory when they came into their autonomous regions. Here the people rule and the government obeys. What does that mean? Well, try to imagine <laughs> the exact opposite of what goes on here, or really what goes on in the rest of Mexico in terms of the official government, as they call it, or they often refer to it as the bad government, el mal gobierno, because they say bad in the sense of the a government that's not in any way committed to the people. So for them, the highest form of government is one that listens to the people. And this is carried out in very in a meticulous way because they have these council meetings where everybody participates. And if they have a proposal that is rejected through many hours of conversation, then they have to deal with that. They don't just by fiat say, well, I'm glad we had that conversation and now we're going to do what we want anyway, which is we're so used to that in our context where oftentimes, you know, you're said to be part of a democratic process or somehow participate in something that really affects your future, whether it's a meeting at a radio station or a meeting at a at a school or somehow that you're going to really affect change by participating. And in this context, when you're in Zapatista territory, they mean what they say. You are in a very different environment and what the communities are the ones who are in control. Fabiana, when you were down there, you participated in um, the next phase and uh, we were just so fortunate that we got some information and shared to the North American population, Albayala North, about the Escuelita, about the new way of educating, the new way, a new uh, pedagogy, if that's the, probably a, maybe doesn't encompass all that, what it is, but uh, talk about that for us. Well, the Escuelita was really interesting. I was able to go myself, which was phenomenal, um, and still have the booklets from it, which you can get online, by the way. I saw them um, available. It was an important, the Escolita was important for a number of reasons. One is that they, the Zapatistas want to educate as many people as possible outside of their communities in other parts of the world, in other parts of Mexico, to understand their project in some depth. And the Escolita was dedicated to doing just that. And each of us, including myself, had our own guide, as it were. Somebody, and this woman, I don't remember how old I was at the time, but I know she was like 19. And this was emblematic of their movement, which, you know, a lot of the young people who were 10 and 12 years old at the time of the rebellion in 94 are now, what, 30 years old or something, 35 years old. So I'm not doing the math really fast in my head here, but essentially that age range and 
So the young people, it was mostly young people with some exceptions, were taking on the role of guides to teach whoever they were accompanying what the movement is about. And that meant we read things together. We got to question them about what goes on. If they didn't understand a question, or I remember each day, they would write it down. What is your question? What may be some of the questions you might consider? And then we would come back later in the afternoon and those questions would be addressed in a plenary session. So it was a very, it, this went on for a week. This was a very thorough attempt. And remember, we're talking folks with no resources to speak of, but managed to organize and because this was a priority for them to get their message across to people who could go back to places like California, to places like Italy or wherever people came from or some other part in Mexico City, wherever they came from, to be able to talk to other people about what the Zapatistas are really about because they have been, from the very beginning, maligned in the sense of not really represented through the media, through the press, through most channels of communication in any honest way about what their goals are, what it is they're trying to achieve. A lot of scare tactics for a long time. One of the leaders, Subcomandante Marcos, for example, would be like, you know, talked about almost like as a bandit, even though he is somebody who came from a background where he was able to contribute something to the Zapatistas, which has changed over time because now someone has taken his place and he shares a role together with one of the Mayan folks from La Realidad, Moises, Comandante Moises, Subcomandante to be precise, who's incredibly articulate and able to really explain what the Zapatistas are trying to accomplish. Now, Fabiana, when you talk about the school, it's an ongoing process, right? I mean, they they just have a school, and Israel international school at the same time, you know, um, for the autonomous regions. How many schools do they have, and what kind of metamorphosis that they experience that you can share with us? Well, the Escolita was a specific project designed for internationals, for internationals and people from Mexico. Their autonomous schools, there are 800 of them. And that number may actually be low because that's based on when I was there last, there were 800. There could well be more by now because as Peter was telling me yesterday, Peter Brown from Schools for Chiapas, they're still building schools. Now, um, I don't want to interrupt you, but yet these schools were produced because of the fact that the Mexican schools number one, did not fulfill their needs, and that's putting it mildly. But number two, all the material that you need for a school, the Mexican government were not being provided. Is that true? The Mexican government was not providing bilingual materials in their original languages. So they would call them bilingual schools, but they didn't care which indigenous language was being spoken. And you know that if you speak an indigenous language and someone comes along and speaks another indigenous language, that doesn't mean you understand. So it's not like you can just swap them out. It doesn't work like that. So even within um, a Sotil-speaking region, for example, where I was up in the mountains, there are different 
regional differences between languages. And it's, you know, it's very, very complicated. It's not a simple matter dealing with language at all. So they felt, number one, that they had to be genuinely bilingual. The other thing that I learned spending time at the school I was at, and this is true generally, is that the official schools, as they call them, the government schools, history begins with colonization. So what happened before that? Is it a big blank? I mean, there's all this unbelievably advanced, extraordinary history. I mean, if you're just looking at Maya alone, and there's a lot more to see than just Maya, but right now we're talking about Chiapas. The history is incredible. People spend all this time going to see in the Yucatan and in Chiapas and all these different cities that were built with capacity to do astronomy and the calculations that they came up with, even though they didn't have any telescopes of Venus and all the planets orbiting the sun, are very, very close to what we know as the calculations today. They did incredible science and mathematics. I've done lots of Mayan mathematics. That's actually one of the things I was focusing on was something called ethno-mathematics or cultural ways of doing math. And so the capacity was enormous. So what does it mean if you tell a young child who's in your school that history begins with the conquest? What message is that about your own indigenous history? We're not even talking about getting to the level of pride. We're talking wipe out your entire memory. You're listening to Fabiana Hurst-Dubin, our international correspondent for American United Coyote Radio. We're talking about the uh, 25th anniversary and the celebration of the Zapatistas uprising. Fabiana, we can go on there for hours. I know we want to keep this short. We end with that, but I, I would be, let's go with the march through Mexico, a little bit of venues of that as far as going through Mexico for the legislation and for the going through the Mexican government ask Me- and demanding the Mexican government that they'll pass some legislation in order to protect indigenous populations vis-a-vis challenging and talking about the up- upholding the constitution of Mexico and certain portions of that, certain articles of that. Why don't you just glance that over for our listenership? Well, the march that happened through Mexico is actually resonating even today because the San Andres Accords that were passed back in 1996 are being attempted to be co-opted by the very president that is in power right now. Not for the same reasons that the San Andres Accords were passed by the Zapatistas. The Zapatistas convened a very varied group of people with many, many participating from the communities and outside of the communities. And a a whole range of people participated in this legal process and it was actually signed at that time by President Zadio. But as you know here from your own history, Marcus and what the history of indigenous people in this part of the hemisphere, signing something doesn't mean you follow it. Signing something means you have it on paper and then you proceed to break it. Now, yes, and but yet, why don't you let the listeners know if you're remembering of this and reflect on this, is about when you said going through different communities, the different communities and the reception of the communities was like no other since the Mexican Revolution? Well, it was an extraordinary undertaking. There were these buses that left 
symbolically from Palenque, the ruins in Chiapas, if the Mayan cities that flourished in Chiapas many, many years ago. And from there, they went basically through a very deliberate path to get to Mexico City, the seat of government. And in the process, they had meetings with indigenous peoples along the way. I remember Norio, you may remember that meeting that took place with other indigenous peoples to talk about why did we pass these San Andres Accords? What is it we're trying to achieve for indigenous peoples, for all of us, as they would put it, because really it's not just about Mayan folks, it's about having the right to bilingual education and having the right to learn your own history and having the right to be respected within your own country. And what does that literally mean when you get right down to it? It means being able to do the kind of autonomous project that they have. So they were bringing their autonomous vision and practice to other communities all along the route, all the way to Mexico City and getting responses. They would meet with anybody who wanted to meet with them along the way. And people would, I remember seeing pictures of it, mm-hmm would line the roads because they wanted to see the Zapatistas and wave to people and just say, yes, we acknowledge you, we support you. Thousands and thousands of people turned out. When they got to Mexico City to the seat of government, I remember they they deliberately almost emptied out the halls of government so that there wouldn't be enough people to actually pass anything, so that this was all planned ahead of time. Yes, you can come and speak in our halls of government, but that doesn't mean we're going to give you the opportunity to make it law. And now, just fast forwarding for a moment, Lopez Obrador, the new president, says, this is the time to pass San Andres. Well, is that because he believes in what the principles are of San Andres? Quite the contrary, but that's a separate conversation. Fabiana, once you you said earlier about the relationship, and I think people get confused between the uh, Zapatistas and ZLA and the Congreso Indígena Mexicana, the Congress of Indigenous Nations. What's the relationship that that you've seen between them two? And I know that within this within this San Andres Accord, that they created a more of a bond because they went actually to Indigenous nations and to Indigenous organizations and communities, and had that dialogue. Once you go through that process for our listeners. Well, there's been a formal relationship between the Zapatistas and the Congreso Nacional Indígena, the National Indigenous Congress, since 98. And probably before, but formally since 98. And that has only continued over time and grown stronger so that now, for example, with the plenary session we just saw take place in October of this of 2018, which means just a few months ago, it w- there were close to 600 representatives. That's a lot of people to get when you have no resources to even get on a bus. <laughs> so let's look at it in that context or find a ride somehow to get to the, in, the indigenous university on the outskirts of San Cristobal. So they met, and this is a culmination of many years of a relationship that's grown over time that's always been based on very articulated and clear principles about respecting each other's self-determination and sovereignty, learning from each other, 
I went to a meeting in Sonora, Mexico, a number of years ago that was called by the Zapatistas and the Congreso Nacional Indígena was part of it as well, that had representatives from Canada all the way down to Chile. And their people compared the projects that were going on in their communities that may not have been quite as mega at that point in time, but they were working their way toward that level in terms of projects damming up rivers and basically creating environmental havoc all over the place in the name of so-called progress, in the name of so-called development, and being willing to sacrifice lands and peoples, mostly indigenous lands and peoples, in the process because that's who lives out on the land and that's who are in these territories. So there's always been emerging that's been very recognized and cherished by the Zapatistas in concert with the Congress and the National Indigenous Congress, which also was responsible for Madi Chui, the the congressional the presidential candidate, who they put forward as a part of a strategy really to get more visibility for the indigenous struggle in Mexico in a context of a process that's seen often as legitimate, the elections but not because they were having an electoral strategy as such. But this is typical of them where they can make use of an opening to talk to people, even though they're defining as they go what that's going to look like. Fabiana, we've looked over quite a few events and history of the Zapatistas for North American English listeners. And I know it's been, we missed a lot in between uh, but um, I think the important points that I wanted to bring up around this conversation, and uh, we wanted to, I wanted to go over the aspects of the myths and stereotypes of this movement. What has been your observation as far as some of the myths and some of the misconceptions about the Zapatistas that many of North American populations across the board don't have a slightest idea what may be um, the truth and the untruths? So why don't you comment, some of your brief comments for our listeners? Well, I think one of the myths is that the Zapatistas on the scene in an armed capacity and then essentially disappeared. There's not an understanding, I think because it's hard maybe for us to fathom in the context we're in, of what does it really look like to build 25 years of autonomy. I mean, we're talking everyday hard work. We're talking everyday sacrifice and people, you know, it's not easy to build collectively. I don't think that comes naturally, as it were, to anyone. So even if there's been collaboration and collectivity as part of the background of Mayan communities, which is true, has been true over time, it still takes a tremendous amount of effort to figure out the best ways to govern yourselves, the best ways to teach. There's always feedback going on from parents, from the community. How do we teach better? That went on at the school that I was at, and I know that is a part of the process that goes on all the time. So I think one of the stereotypes is that somehow this movement was almost like, you know, Zorro or something, you know, like you come in, you're this incredible figure, 
you do your Z and you ride off into the night. I mean, something that's like phantasma or not real. And I think it's because not very many people know or are familiar with what does the hard work of what these folks do look like every single day? Within that, why don't you explain the caracolas? Um, it c- comes up time and time again, and you're talking about organizing, you're talking about community. What was so impressive about uh, those um, that structure? What's impressive to me about that structure, I remember when it first got developed in uh, 2003, was the advent of the caracoles. And that symbol is really, really important for Mayan people. And I don't think it's exclusively Mayan because I think using using a shell is not unique to them. But they have, a caracol is basically a shell or a spiral. And in the case of the caracol little animal, the snail, their river and ocean. They can be either. And the communities were based on that image and that history that comes from the ancient Mayans because the caracol, by the way, is also zero in Mayan math. Mm. It's the same symbol, which it's, uh, they saw it as a way for people to enter their communities not in, I remember the description of this, not in a linear way where you're going from what do I think when I enter this community and what do these folks think who are in the community, but actually more of a spiral where you're working through your heart and your mind and making kind of a a circle or a spiral through that process because what they really believe is that people can only understand what they're doing in Chiapas, in the Mayan communities that are autonomous in Zapatista if they use their heart as well as their mind, that they're not going to figure it out if they just use their mind. We're speaking with Fabiana Hirsch-Dubin, our international correspondent for American Indian Airways, Coyote Radio. Fabiana, and, and finally, we want to get to the president. We missed a chunk, and we'll get back to that. We want to get back to you. Um, on on this very important um, discussion, and we're discussing the 25 years of the Zapatistas and the the Zapatista uprising and the gathering of the of the networks. Um, um, in December, they had the invitation to the 24th anniversary celebration of the Zapatistas uprising to gathering networks, Zapatistas uh, Army for National Liberation. And it went to all groups, collectives, organizations, and so on and so forth, to um, ne- networks of resistance and rebellion, or whatever you call yourselves, I would say. But yet, um, they call for this, and they had their conference. And talk about that. What did you? How did you read the statement? Uh, it's in Spanish, and parts of it. I know that they talked about political economy. They talked about films. They talked about the wall. They talked about many other things. But yet, and it was very fascinating reading about. A capital and the different stages of capital and we live to die in capital and not to live but they had many many other things but this last gathering they had in December talk about that and to leave our listeners with well they get pretty deep when it comes to analyzing the world I mean it's the opposite of what the stereotype because you're mentioning stereotypes before what the stereotype is of 
indigenous folks is not necessarily that level of depth and that level of thinking and that brilliance, that unbelievable brilliance that the ancient Maya had and so do the current day Maya and it's not exclusive to Mayan people by any means but when we're talking about Chiapas, that's who we're looking at. And they had this celebration of the 25th anniversary both to talk about the level of crisis that they face, which is very real under neoliberalism, and the threats to their very existence because many, including the current president, would like to just see them eliminated. Um, And that's not an exaggeration. That's apparently on the agenda for this president although others of his predecessors have had the same desire and have never achieved it, which is a, a tremendous testament testimony to what the Zapatistas have done in the way of um, just being able to move probably in a caracol-like fashion to avoid the enemy when they need to and not be easily provoked. And let me tell you, after seeing some of what the paramilitaries do, you could be provoked at any given time because you're being attacked in a very unprincipled, to say the least, fashion. And it would be very, very easy to respond. I mean, you have your comrades and your friends and people you love under attack. It would be very easy to just have an emotional response. And that wouldn't be seen as unusual or rare or anything like that. But what they talked about at this anniversary is both the real dangers that they face and the risks that they face every single day, as well as acknowledging what does it mean that they've been around for 25 years. That's a long, that's a quarter of a century. That's extraordinary, given that at the very, very beginning of their existence, there were the military the presidential apparatus, all the forces in Mexico, aside from popular movements and the people and other indigenous folks, wanted to wipe them out and were paid to do so. I remember the amount of money that was on Marcos's head and other people who were David, who was one of the leaders in the in the area I was from, a social um, man who'd been around for many years, Mayan man, who tremendous... Comandante Ramona. Ramona, who died about 15 years ago, she had cancer, but she was, on the one hand, petite in stature, but Marcos used to say her footprints were bigger than his when they walked through the forest because she created such resonance and was such a powerful figure in the movement. But they wanted to get rid of these folks, and they couldn't buy them off. They tried. There were remarkable amounts of money that they tried to buy people off with and, you know, get them involved in projects that would waste their time. And, you know, there's many, many different levels on which you can attack a movement and peoples. And they tried every single one of them, and it didn't work. And I think that's why there's such a strong commitment with this new president to try to get rid of the Zapatistas, because that's a real impediment to his lies. They are able to speak from their experience and really speak the truth and make it very, very difficult for those who are lying to get away with it. And I'll just say one last thing, which is, because this happened when they were campaigning against Obrador back in 2006, the Zapatistas, because Obrador was touted as a leftist. 
And in some ways, you can be more dangerous when you're a so-called lefty in terms of your policies. Um, what happened is, I remember they said to try and make people understand right hand, left hand, same body. So if you're from the right, Enrique Peña Nieto, or you're from the left, Andres Lopez Obrador, you're still the same body, meaning the system is intact and no change will happen. And that's what we're seeing right now. In ending, Fabiana, what do you want the listeners to come out from this discussion? One of the very important points is, I think there are many ways to educate yourself about the Zapatista movement and not just as history, it is going on right as we speak. So they are not invisible. They are communities of people alive and well, and not just functioning, but I would say thriving in terms of their capacity. You can learn about the National Indigenous Congress and the kinds of achievements they've created. And you also need to know about all the projects that are called death projects by their movement because they are designed to try to kill off whole communities of people, essentially take away land, take away lives and resources from the very people who've protected the land the most, the indigenous folks of Mexico. So you can be educated about what this movement is really up to 25 years since 1994. The moment of silence is over. And that was Dr. Fabiana Hirsch-Dubin, County Radio's correspondent, wrapping up our mini-series on 25 Years Later, the National Liberation Zapatista Army, the EZLN's colonial refusal and resistance in Chiapas, Mexico. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, John Ruiz of the Chumash Nation and Dr. Fabiana Hirsch. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Tracy Lee Nelson, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Endure. We're in our 
silence is over.